Well, we are in our series called Greater. It's on the book of Colossians. And so today we are in the third part, Colossians 1, beginning in verse 13. So if you want to look there in your Bible or your smartphone or whatever you got with you. Uh, and as you, as you turn to that passage, I just want to give some quick background. Uh, Colossae was a town in the Roman Empire, and the Romans had conquered many different people groups, many different cultures, many different religions. If you can remember back to your history class, basically they had the whole Mediterranean basin that they had conquered. And so they had all these different people. And one of the tough things about having a big empire is you got to get people to get along, right, and to not fight each other. And so one of the ways that they created unity in this very diverse empire was to teach people to worship each other's gods. And so if somebody moved to your city and they worshipped maybe the Egyptian god Isis or they worshipped the Greek pantheon, that was okay. That was fine. Uh, Nobody needs to get upset as long as they're also willing to worship the gods of your city and to worship the emperor, to, to offer sacrifices to the emperor. And so Colossae was a melting pot of different people and different religions. It was in western Turkey, near where where Europe and Asia meet. And so as people traveled across the Roman Empire to do business, to trade, they would often go through that area. It was a common area for traders and and for business. And so in this area, people worshipped many different gods, and they, they tended to blend religions together. So Turkey, uh, kind of the Middle East, it was just a a melting pot of religions, and they all kind of got blended together. And so when the Christians came to Colossae, and they began to proclaim that there's one God, and there's one way to salvation, one way to that God, and it's through Christ alone, only through Jesus, they got noticed. Their message stood out because it seemed intolerant and weird and offensive. And some people got really angry and persecuted them. That was pretty normal. But some of the more intellectual-oriented people, more philosophically minded, they said, well, okay, this is an interesting message. Let's see what we can take away from this. And so they said, well, we don't really buy into the whole idea of Jesus being the only way to God. Of course, not that. And they didn't like the idea of Jesus having a physical body. But they said, we can take parts of this Christianity thing, and I think parts of this are kind of nice. And they, they said, let's blend it with these other religions that we've already blended together. And so they created this system that today we call Gnosticism. It's this idea of, of blending different religions, that they all have kind of these commonalities. And so this, this Gnostic belief basically said there's one God, one supreme being, but he's impersonal. He's not, the, not God as we think of him. He doesn't relate to you personally. He's impersonal. So he's like, a, he's like a big cosmic stare, just kind of staring at you forever in space. He doesn't do anything, just this cosmic stare. Uh, but somehow, and they don't know how, but somehow part of God, part of his spiritual energy broke off. It broke off from him and it splintered into all these different things, lots of different spirits. And at the very lowest level, it broke into, to, it turned into to physical matter, physical energy, physical stuff, the universe. And so at the top level are these powerful spirits, disembodied spirits. It's pretty cool to be a disembodied spirit in that system. But humans, we are spirits that somehow got stuck in physical matter. So we're like, we got caught in the mud somehow. And so we're spirits, but we got bodies, and that's not cool because we, we experience suffering and different things. And so for Gnostics, 
the way to the way to be to salvation is to somehow escape the physical universe, escape your body, and somehow get back to God and be absorbed back into the supreme being. And so the way they, they thought to do that was to follow lots of different rituals, lots of different religious rules, and to devote yourself to powerful spirit beings. They called these powers or angels or heavenly rulers and authorities. That was their idea. There's lots of these spirit beings. And so for the Gnostics, that's what the gods were. Every religion had their own gods, but they said basically the gods are these spirit beings out there. And so what you need to do is devote yourself to the, a spirit being, and that, those beings will help you to become enlightened, to gain spiritual knowledge that will help you to grow and to progress in your spiritual journey. And so the Gnostics, they like Jesus. They're like, yeah, he's a good teacher. Sure, we'll, we'll add him to the list, right? Throw him onto the list with all the other spirit beings. But they insisted that we can't be exclusive, right? He's not the only way to God. He is, he's a way. But we need to be open to the teachings of other spirits, other religions, too. That's what Gnostics believed. And that probably sounds a little bit familiar to you. I think often in the United States, as Christians, we feel like this whole religious uh, diversity, pluralism, uh, we feel like it's a new thing. And we're like, oh, this is so scary, so weird, you know, uh, because for so long the United States was pretty monolithic. Most people said, yeah, I'm a Christian. Most people professed Christ um, because there were social benefits to that. But now more and more, uh, our culture is becoming diverse. Lots of people immigrating, so lots of different religions. Lots of people are calling themselves spiritual uh, meaning, well, I'm just kind of, yeah, I believe there's a supernatural reality. There's spirits out there. Uh, I, don't, I don't, you know, get locked down into one religion. That's becoming more and more common. There's all these books out, um, you know, like New Agey books, like uh, people talking about near-death experiences, but they're not Christian, right? Or they're having non-Christian visions. They're like, yeah, we're all going to heaven. We're all going to the same place. And so we're like, oh, this is so terrible. This is such a new development. What are we going to do? But the reality is this is an old issue. This has been around for a long time. Yeah, Satan doesn't like ever really come up with anything new. He just kind of recycles the same old stuff. This has been around for a long time. We just need, we need to like calm down a little bit and say, okay, this is, yeah, this is what the first Christians faced in the Roman Empire. And so when Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians, he has this issue, religious pluralism, Gnosticism, he has this in mind. He knows how tempting it's going to be for them and for us to accept this Gnostic view that all religions are basically the same. We can all worship different spirits and they'll help us get back to God. And you can worship, you know, Zeus or Jesus or Vishnu, whoever it is, that's fine. Just, just don't be exclusive. That's the only, only rule. And it sounds nice. It sounded nice to the Colossian Christians. Because it takes away the whole offensive parts of the gospel, right? The whole, you know, kind of uncomfortable parts about hell and sin and things like that. It's like, ah, don't worry about that stuff, right? Just don't, yeah, we're all going the same way. And it protects you from ridicule and persecution. I think one of the misunderstandings we have is that the early Christians were persecuted because they believed in Jesus. That's not quite true. It's persecuted, they were persecuted because they only believed in Jesus. If they had just added Jesus to the list of all the other gods, they would have been just fine. People had no problem with you worshiping whoever you want. You could go worship a tree. People didn't have an issue with that, as long as you also worshiped the gods they were worshiping. And so it was tempting for Christians to be like, okay, yeah, I, I worship Jesus, but I'll go offer a, te- uh, you know, a sacrifice at this God's temple and make everybody happy, and we'll all be comfortable, and we'll all be at peace, right? Very PC. But Paul says, hey, don't be deceived. 
He says, I'm praying for you, that, that God will fill you with the knowledge of his will. And Dean did such a great job last week of explaining how God's will is more than just what person to marry or what career to go track to go down or what car to buy. I mean, he cares about that stuff for sure because he cares about you personally and the details of your life. But God's will is bigger than that. Uh, he, his greatest concern for you is that you would know the truth, that you would trust in Christ and you would hold firm to your faith and not be deceived, and you would live out your faith. We tend to spend most of our time just thinking about day-to-day issues. It's natural, right? I, I got to get home from work in time to take the kids to soccer practice, and you know, that's how, that's how we live. We're busy. But in the midst of that, we forget that there's a spiritual battle going on for your soul and for the souls of people around you. And that's what God's greatest concern is, is that we would know the truth. We would hold firm to Christ, and we would live out our faith. And so in our passage today, Paul gives us, it's interesting, Paul does not guilt people. He's not like, you stupid Colossians, why are you even even thinking about this? What he does is, instead of guilting them, he holds up the greatness of Christ. And he says, I know you're being tempted over here, but look at Jesus and look how much greater he is. And so he gives us 17 reasons why Christ is greater than any other spirit, any other religion. And so we're going to look at each of these today, and it's going to feel a little bit academic Honestly, and it's, it's going to feel a little bit choppy. It's probably the first time you've ever heard a 17-point sermon. Um, so, and I'm going, to, I'm going to fly through it pretty quick because I don't want to keep you here all afternoon. I want to see the football games too. So, um, but I do, I do want to go through each of these points um, because my goal is that after today, uh, I, I know you're not going to remember everything I say. I don't, I'm not disillusioned in that way. But I, I do think, after, hopefully after today, if a, a spiritual person, a person from another religion comes up to you and says, hey, you know, we basically believe the same stuff, right? I mean, you believe, we believe in God. We both believe Jesus was a great teacher. He's a, he's a powerful spirit who, who showed us a way to God, right? We're the same. And you can say, hey, man, thank you for, thank you for like, sharing with me and talking with me. I, I, thank you, but I have to respectfully disagree with you. And here's why. And you can take them to a passage like Colossians and show them why Christ is greater. So let's dive in. Colossians 1, verse 13. It says, For He, Jesus, or excuse me, He, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm not moved from the hope held out in the gospel this is the gospel that you heard 
and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So the first, the first point, the first thing that Paul says in verse 13 is that Jesus is the king. He has a kingdom. And his kingdom is in opposition to, to the dominion of darkness. Paul is saying right off, right off, right, right away, I can't talk very well. He's saying right away that, that not all religions are right. There are not many ways to salvation. Paul says there are two realms, the kingdom of light with Jesus as the king, and the dominion of darkness. And those spirits that the Gnostics think of as benevolent teachers and helpful spirit powers, they're actually, Paul says, evil spirits who are part of this this dominion of darkness over here, and they're trying to deceive people and keep people in darkness. He says there are not many ways to heaven. There's only one way with Jesus as king. The other ways lead to darkness. Second point, Paul says, Jesus is the beloved Son of God. In verse 13, Jesus is not an angel. He's not just another spirit. He's not a child of God in the sense that we're all children of God. He is the unique Son of God. Third point, in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Gnosticism said that that you didn't need to be saved from sin. The problem is ignorance. And so you just need to gain knowledge. You don't need salvation is not about forgiveness. It's about learning things. It's about growing in your knowledge and gaining uh, the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. That's where we get the term gnostic. But Paul says that's not really the issue. He says the biggest issue is not ignorance. It's sin. We know deep down that God is real, but we rebel against him. And through our sin, we've separated ourselves from a relationship with God And we have come under the influence of demonic beings. When I was was a little kid, I used to like to put on other people's glasses. Maybe I'm just a weirdo, but I I like to do that. And so my mom's glasses, they'd be these huge things that would take up half my face, and they were thick. Uh, This was back, I don't know, in the 80s. They didn't know how to make good glasses back then. Uh, Big old thick things. I guess those were popular. I'd put on my grapples, bifocals. And, and I liked them because they distorted reality, right? If you're wearing these big old glasses and they're prescription, everything gets all jumbled and like, you know, thin people look fat and fat people look thin and everything's all crazy and you're like, oh, this is so cool. But it, it distorts your perspective. Everything is out of proportion. Think of the influence of sin and Satan as, as wearing glasses that distort your perception of reality. They change how things look to you. And no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you try to learn and you try to know the truth, if you're looking through those glasses, your knowledge will always be distorted. You'll never perceive reality clearly while you're wearing those glasses. And the problem is you can't even take them off on your own because you don't know you're wearing them. There's such a part of you that you just, you, that's, this is just how you see the world. And so to be saved... God himself must do what is necessary for your glasses to be taken off and for your sins to be forgiven. It's not a matter of you reaching God. It's a matter of God reaching down to you. And that's what Jesus has done for us, Paul says. He has redeemed us. That means he has paid the price so that we can be forgiven and bought back, freed from slavery to Satan, from Satan's influence and control. Fourth point, Christ is the image of of the invisible God. Image in the Greek, it has two ideas. It it can mean reflection, like in a mirror. So if you look in a mirror, you see your image. But it it can also mean, it's kind of a strange idea here, but it can mean to make something invisible visible. 
Something invisible, visible. So sometimes, I'm going to do another Harry Potter reference. I know that's bad for some of you. But in, in Harry Potter, you can say a spell and it makes invisible things visible. And that's the idea here in this second meaning, to make something that's normally hidden visible and clear. And so Jesus does both of these. Jesus is the reflection of God. He's God in the mirror, so to speak. God looks in the mirror and he sees Jesus. But Jesus is also God made visible to humans. When we look at Jesus, we see God clearly. We see his attitude, his tone, how he responds to things. When you read the gospel, you are reading about God. You are, you are seeing what God is like. When I was a kid, I had an issue with, with the Trinity. I believed in the Trinity. I was a Christian, but I, I really liked Jesus. Like Jesus, and I, I was like, I can relate to this guy, kind of. I mean, you know, the pictures, he's always petting lambs and stuff in my children's books. And I was like, okay, well, seems like a pretty good guy, safe at least. You know, he wasn't like an action hero, but at least I, I can relate to him, you know. And so I kind of thought of him as like a brother or a buddy or whatever. But, and the Holy Spirit was kind of weird, like a ghost. I just, I couldn't really relate to that. And then God the Father was kind of scary to me, honestly, because I was always getting in trouble as a kid. And so I got a lot of discipline, a lot of spankings, timeouts and stuff. And so I just always felt like God the Father is kind of looking at me like, I see you, boy, kind of, kind of thing, kind of like... <laughs> And I was like, oh, dang it, you know. And so it's like, when I'd pray to the Father, I'd be like, God, you know, I'm sorry again for what I did. And I just had, but Jesus, I could just be more natural. And it wasn't until a little bit later, I don't know how old I was, but it, it, it hit me one day as I was reading that, I think it was in Hebrews, I was reading Jesus is the, you know, like this perfect image of God. And I was just like, Jesus, when I look at Jesus, I see the Father. The Father is like Jesus. And so they're not two different types of people. And it struck me, so now it's so much easier for me to pray to the Father, because when you pray to the Father, the Father is like the Son. He's the perfect, the Son is the perfect image of the Father. Fifth point, He, Jesus, is the firstborn over all creation. That's a tricky statement, because it sounds like maybe Jesus was born or created before the rest of creation. That's what Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses think. Now, the term firstborn in the ancient world It can literally mean firstborn, like the firstborn child, but it's also a term of importance. And so even if somebody isn't a literal firstborn, you would call them that, you would use that term to to show their preeminence, their greatness over everyone else. The firstborn was the leader, the, the head of the family. They inherited more than everyone else. And so in the Old Testament, God called the Israelites, the people of Israel, his firstborn among all the nations. Now that doesn't mean that they were literally somehow born, literally. It just means that they had preeminence. In God's plan of salvation, the people of Israel had a special, significant role that in a sense put them above everyone else. And so God said, you're like my firstborn. And so Jesus has preeminence over creation. He is the head. He's, the, he's, the, he's first over all things. And verse 16 makes it very clear why that is. It says, our sixth point, it says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. And the word for at the beginning of the verse, it means because. So Paul is explaining what makes Jesus the firstborn over creation. It's not because Jesus was created first. It's because he created everything that was made. In other words, if something was created, it was created by Jesus. John 1, 3, at the top of your worship folder, it says it this way. It says, through him, all things were made. 
And if you just pause there, you, you could say, okay, well, maybe, every, maybe he was made first and then everything else was made after him. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses will try to argue. But John goes on. He won't let you do that. He goes on and he says, without him, nothing was made that has been made. So if something was made, if it was created, it was made by Jesus. If it is a made thing, if it is a created thing, it was created by him. And since he can't make himself, he can't create himself, Jesus is uncreated. Anything that's been created, anything that's been made, was made by him. There's two categories of reality. Follow me. I know it's a little bit abstract, but just follow. There's, there's the unmade things over here, uncreated things. They, they never began to exist. They've always existed. And there's made things, created things over here. Now in the Bible, the only thing in the unmade category is God, right? Everything in the created category is everything else, the universe. Paul and John say Jesus doesn't belong in the second category. He belongs in the unmade category, which means Jesus is God. He's God. And he made everything, including these spirit beings that the Gnostics like to worship. Uh, those, he, Paul says these aren't divine. They, they didn't break off of God. They're not co-equal with Jesus. They were created by Jesus. They were made good. They chose to rebel against God and became evil. But they are not in the same category as Jesus. They are made by him. And therefore they are not worthy of worship or obedience. Only Jesus is worthy of worship. Seventh point, all things were created through him. And the, the NIV translates that by. It should be through him. And here in that, we see this picture of how the Trinity worked together. Okay, so Jesus, when he, when he made the universe, he wasn't just kind of hanging out. And he's like, hey, hey Dad, what, what are you doing, man? You, and, oh, you're busy. Okay, Spirit, hey, oh, you're, you're watching the game. Uh, okay, well, I'm just going to go over here and make a universe because I, I need something to do. That, that isn't how it worked. The Trinity worked together. And so it was the Father's will to create the universe through the Son by the power of the Spirit. And all things, point eight, all things were created for him, for Christ. That's an amazing statement. I want to camp on that a little bit. It, it gives us God's purpose statement for creating the world. Have you ever wondered, man, why did God create the universe? Like, why? Why, why do it? I mean, of course, there's a lot of good, but there's a lot of evil. Why, why even worry about it, right? Uh, for, God knows with free will people are going to do bad things. Why, why did God even create the universe at all? Why bother? And some people will answer that and say, well, God was lonely, right? Poor God, he needed someone to love him, and he needed, you know, to, to love somebody. But the trouble is Christians say, no, God's a trinity. There's, there's three persons who love each other eternally, so that God didn't have that problem. And some people say, well, God just wanted, he made the universe so people would be happy. He wanted to create people to be happy. And that's somewhat true, but I think the issue is there are many things which God allows which don't make sense if his highest goal is to make people happy, if that is his ultimate goal. I think the Bible says the reason God created the world was to glorify Jesus Christ, to show the greatness of Jesus. Everything that happens is planned by God for that purpose. Creation, Allowing sin to enter the world. Sending Jesus to die for our salvation. Heaven, eternity with God. All of these things are part of God's plan to show the greatness of Christ. That is his ultimate, his highest purpose. Every other purpose and goal of God is subordinate to that one. Everything God does is for that end. Nothing, think of it this way, 
Nothing in the universe exists for itself. From the smallest particle to the, to the greatest star, from, from the sweetest grandma to the most evil dictator, everything that exists was created to show the greatness of Christ more clearly. And you could say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make me feel very important. And it shouldn't, because Christ is a lot more important than you. <laughs> really. But the fact that the most important being in the universe loves you enough to die for you should make you feel important. And this is more than abstract theology. I, I, I think this is, in, in, this is crucial for understanding God's ways. If you don't get this, you read the Bible and it's not quite going to make sense to you. But if God's purpose is not just to make people happy, if God's purpose is to display Christ's goodness and his love and his power against a dark backdrop of evil and opposition, then our world makes sense. Ninth point, he, Christ, is before all things. He's the first being to exist, showing again that he is God. And in him, all things hold together. So not only does Christ create everything, he sustains it, he maintains it. And he is the head of the church, the body, the church. He is our leader, our Lord. He is the beginning. He is the foundation and the cornerstone of, of Christianity. And he's the firstborn from among the dead. He is the first human to physically rise from the dead with a new resurrection body. So that in everything, he might have the supremacy. Not only is Jesus supreme in the universe because he's God, he's supreme in human history because he's the greatest human to ever live. He's our human representative before God. He lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we deserved to die, making him the greatest human in history. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Christ. Fullness, the Greek word here, plurena, it means totality, wholeness, completeness, everything is what it means. And so another way to say it is God was pleased to have his whole nature Dwell in Christ. Most people think of the Trinity as like a pie with three slices, right? You got the pie, and then if you're a really hungry guy, you cut it in three slices, and that's all you, so you got three slices. That's the Trinity. And so God, Father is one-third God, and Jesus is one-third God, and the Spirit's one-third God. That's how we tend to think, but Paul says, no, that's not it. Jesus has all of God's nature in him. He is all God. He's not a third. He's all of it. He's 100%. There's a mystery here. We're diving into the Trinity. It's a mystery. There's a lot of different ways to explain it. Um, I'm not dogmatic. I like Jonathan Edwards' view. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said that, that God, the Father is God prime, so to speak, and God has always had a self-concept, a concept of himself in his mind, and that concept is so perfect that it is literally another person, the second person of the Trinity. God's self-concept is God. You can talk about that with me later if you want. I enjoy that one. <laughs> well, we can talk about how the Holy Spirit fits in that too. But the, the idea here is Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and that's why he says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Sixteenth point, and through him, through Christ, God reconciles to himself all things on earth or things in heaven. And the idea here is that when Christ returns to defeat and to judge evil, God will subdue all his enemies. And he will bring everything into alignment with his perfect will 
and there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and God will live in direct fellowship with His people, and He will wipe every tear from every eye, and the veil will be taken away, and we will see Christ face to face. And the reason that is possible is because of point 17, that Christ has made peace through His blood shed on the cross. We were once alienated from God, separated from Him. We were enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. We had those sin glasses on, and we didn't even know we were wearing them. But because of what Christ has done by taking the punishment for our sins on the cross and by offering His perfect resume of righteousness to us, that we can present to God and say, I am righteous, God, not on the basis of my behavior, but on the basis of Christ's, what He has done. Because of that, we can have a relationship with God as His holy people, without blemish and free of accusation. We simply have to put our faith in Christ and hold firm to it, not giving up on our hope. And so my desire, my hope today is that when your faith wavers, when your heart is cold, when you feel that that temptation to just water down your faith and say, okay, it's all about the same, all religions are going the same way, that you would go back to this list. You would go back to Colossians 1, 13-23, and you would meditate on the greatness of Christ. That He is not just another spirit. He's not just another way. He is God, and He is supreme in all things. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that by Your great love for us, You sent Christ to redeem us, to die for us. We thank you that all things that happen are according to your will for the glory of Jesus. May we live with that. May that free us, Lord, from self-occupation. So often we've focused on why you allow certain things to happen to us. Lord, help us to, to have the freedom to know that things, even things that don't fully make sense to us, are ultimately for the glory of Jesus. And let us live for his glory and even die for it if you ask us to, Lord. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.